0: Day, welcome to the Cory Morgan show. Hey, we're getting into July now, it's my favorite month of the year. We're not crawling out of winter through spring, and the leaves aren't quite turning yellow yet to warn us we're going into winter. Never learned to like winter, I just can't do it. Uh, good on those who do. Lots to cover today. The politics aren't ending, even though the legislatures and the parliament are all. Uh, off for their summer holidays to go around shaking hands, kissing babies, attending barbecues, cutting ribbons, and doing all that important stuff they do when uh, when we don't lock them in the parliament to, or at least on Zoom meetings now, to uh, try and tell us how to live our lives. They're still managing to do it. They're still managing to make a mess, and they're still managing to be a pain. So of course, I will call them out on it and complain about it today. Be sure to use that uh, comment scroll over there guys. That's what I like about being live. You know, I can see some of that stuff. Good to see Jake and Paradoxy checking in there. Uh, If you're watching a recorded version, of course, I uh, just don't pay any mind to my references to the comments. And, uh, you know, discuss things. Send questions my way. Send them uh, towards the guests. I have Chris Sims coming on from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in a little while. It's going to be a good conversation about our second carbon tax and how Quebec, of course, as usual, somehow has managed to get a better deal on it than the rest of the country. Uh, as well, we'll be checking in with Dave in a little bit and doing some some other good stuff. Just keep the comments. Civil with each other, and we can all get along. So uh, good to see you checking in, sharing, uh, saying hello there, and Kevin out in uh, Lake Pelletier, Saskatchewan. I love messing up French names. So one of the things on the news, when I came into the newsroom today, I saw a conference with our heritage minister, Rodriguez, indignantly going on. He's going to make Facebook and Google pay their fair share for Doing a service somehow, yeah. And now they're going to pull the uh, advertising, the government advertising, away from Facebook. That's how they're going to bring Facebook to their knees. The government will not spend advertising dollars on Facebook telling us how good they are and and what a fantastic job they're doing for us. So I want to talk about this, though, this this problem. I mean, most of this, Bill C-18 is a solution looking for a problem, really, is what it is. I mean, there's an issue, but the government can't legislate it away. And they, they won't, through theft and subsidies, save legacy media. So I'm going to you know talk about how that works with the changing world so I mean I'll give some history on myself. I love talking about myself we know that. At the beginning of the 1990s, I landed a job with a survey company and they specialized in advanced work for seismic projects. It involved travel and working in isolated areas. The starting pay was pretty modest back then, but I loved it. Uh, climbing the workplace ladder in the survey industry back then was a slow process. I had to put in a few years as a rodman and a chainer before I was even allowed to touch a survey transit as a junior surveyor. So I had to take my lumps and abuse and learn. I had to learn how to make solar observations to determine an azimuth out in the bush, how to double angles in my head to ensure accurate measurements. And I had to process my raw data and to finish survey at night in the hotel rooms or camps I was staying in. It was a big learning curve. Now, shortly after I became a junior surveyor, everything changed as real-time survey systems, GPS systems, came onto the scene. Suddenly, with only a few hours of training, a person could navigate to a location, record the elevation, just as accurately as I'd had to learn how to do with conventional surveying. Just a few hours of training. Demand for conventional surveyors dropped dramatically as fewer people with less training could cover more ground in sticking out exploration programs. It felt unfair, and it was certainly annoying, to say the least, all that time I'd put in to find my job was obsolete. But it left me with two options. I could stubbornly refuse to change how I work and slowly fade into unemployment, or maybe change trades even, or I could adapt with the changing times. Now, many of the older surveyors opted for the first option. I mean, old dogs can learn new tricks, but it is tougher for them as things go along. As for myself, I was young, I adapted. I learned how to create maps using GPS data, and took on more supervisory roles in the field. And being flexible, I kept working and spent over 20 lucrative years working in energy exploration. I left the field eventually as I got tired of being out of the country for months at a time, and the feast or famine nature of petrochemical exploration started to wear on me. But if I'd have wanted to, I could have stayed in the field. I, could have, I would have had to constantly adapt, though, to the changes in new technology and methods. Now let's get back to the media. Changes in the media industry over the last decade have been no less, than dramatic, you know, no less dramatic than they were in the survey world. Readership and viewership for conventional media platforms such as television and newspapers dried up. Radio stations, they're going to be a thing of the past within a generation. Advertising dollars have followed audiences and headed to platforms like YouTube and Facebook. Every major media outlet's been forced to heavily cut back on staff and resources. They're in a dire position. But the Canadian government has responded by directly subsidizing media outlets, and now they're trying to extort funds from social media platforms to try and prop up these legacy media sources. Now, not only will the efforts to bail out obsolete media outlets inevitably fail, but it'll also actually hurt them. I mean, if I, back when I was surveying, had a subsidy lifeline tossed to me while my trade was evolving, I probably would have desperately grabbed to that at the time, too. It would have been easier than changing how I do things, and I could have stuck to the form of the trade I had trained for. For a while, at least. No amount of bailout dollars could have saved my job in its original form in the long run. I mean, for perspective, the first program I ever worked on in the survey field had a crew of about 40 people, and it took us over a month. A job that size today would take eight people about two weeks to do. The old way just wasn't sustainable. If I'd have been protected from change, though, as GPS came along, I would've been employed for perhaps a couple more years, but it would've left me even more vulnerable and unskilled when the dollars dried up. I wouldn't have been inspired to learn modern methods, nor would the companies in the industry have been. We would've been left behind and perhaps would've been replaced by foreign workers uh, who kept up with new technology. Subsidies actually would've stunted the evolution of companies and workers. Now the same thing's happening with legacy media. Instead of griping about new upstart outlets and journalists, the old guard and conventional media should be looking at how to emulate them. I mean, if they hope to remain gainfully employed in the field of journalism, they need to accept change. Newspapers are little more than flyers now, and TV news ratings are never going to recover. And the infrastructure required for those old dinosaurs, those models, is too expensive to maintain. A new company, like the Western Standard, can build a studio or create an online publication for a tiny fraction of the money it would have required 20 years ago. The government right now is keeping a corpse on life support and is doing a disservice to both journalists and Canadian citizens and consumers. New outlets are being choked off, while legacy outlets are creating models market, uh, create, creating products modeled for a market that just doesn't exist anymore. Legacy media dinosaurs are going to go extinct no matter what the government does. When that happens, the information gap will be much harder to fill, though, due to the efforts to fight change and innovation. Demand for news and information isn't going any going away any more than demand for petrochemical products is. But the way we produce and deliver those products has changed. And unless we let companies evolve and stay out of it, we're going to lose our domestic producers to innovative foreign ones or chat GPT. Things such as that are going to actually replace a lot of people in media, and artificially trying to hold it together like this, guys, is is, it's only putting off the inevitable and causing more harm. All right, that's what's got me going today. Let's see what else is happening out there in the world and uh, check in with our news editor, Dave Naylor. Hey, Dave, how's it going? Oops, guess I should
1: unmute myself. Uh, That's going well, Corey. Uh, uh,
0: Yeah, are you all ready for the stampede this Friday? Oh, yes. I mean, next week, I get my one day of the year when I can, you know, wear my jeans and, uh, you know, cosplay a cowboy for the show. Yeah, and the missus is going to be heavily involved this year, too, right? Yes, she will. Yeah, she's uh, got some stuff on display at the Stampede Grounds this year. Yeah.
1: Well, there we go. Yes, the, the, the barn
0: quilts. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, that's at the BMO Center. Uh, it's a tribute to Ian Tyson, as you can see. I, You know, these quilts, her business has really been taken off. I'm well on my road to being a kept man and uh, yeah, you know, thousands of people are going to see that one barn quilt that has the the four strong winds tribute to Ian Tyson and the the cowboy hats around it. Uh, she's she's got quite some talent, and I, I'm lucky to have. Uh, you know, she has bad taste in men.
1: Yes, very true. Well, yeah, I encourage everybody to go by and uh, and take a look at it. It uh, uh, she sure does a good job. That's for sure. Um, to yeah, understand geez. you being uh, uh, more cougar problems out at your uh, your ranch, Corey.
0: Well, not a problem, yeah, but yeah, we had one run through the yard there the other day and in middaylight, and it was really on the move. Like, yeah, you can see with that video, you know, usually the, the cougars aren't uncommon, but they only come by at night and they usually come by a little slowly. This, this, We haven't seen one in a while and this fella came trotting right through in broad daylight there. So, uh, well, I might have one less dog if it keeps hanging around. We'll see.
1: Yeah, that's a big boy too. I don't know how you sleep at night, Corey, with all those things in the forest watching you. Bears, cougars... well I keep the doors closed there you go well what's going on in the news quite a bit Corey. Uh, with no summer doldrums yet our uh, real estate expert Mike Thomas is leading off the uh, website at the moment with a story on the uh, still red-hot Calgary real estate market Uh, in uh, June it's at a uh, uh, second consecutive record Uh, so uh, sales are high and uh, the prices are even higher uh, columnist Herb Binder has got a look at uh, the Alberta oil economy and uh, what's going to be happening in the uh, uncertain future. Uh, two Alberta cabinet ministers have written to the feds, urging that they recall parliament to end that, uh, uh, I guess it's what three or four day uh, long strike now by uh, BC uh, port workers. Al- Alberta ships about $12.5 billion a year, or uh, 9% of the... Uh, uh, the provincial economy goes through the bc ports so anything that drags on core is going to be a bit of a, a disaster for uh, for uh, not only alberta's economy but uh, but across the country uh you've mentioned the uh, the, the liberals out uh, waving their fists at facebook today they've cut their 10 million dollars uh, worth of uh, of advertising on facebook so uh, don't know how we're going to hear about how well they're uh, what kind of uh, job they're doing now And I think you also mentioned uh, Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Association. Uh, They've put out a a release today uh, showing why Quebec is uh, getting the lowest rate of carbon tax uh, in the country, uh, where it's uh, uh, they're paying four cents less a liter than anywhere else, Corey. So what Quebec has done to deserve that, uh, you and I can only guess. But uh, that, lots of other stuff. our legislature reporter, uh, Arthur Green, is currently covering a uh, Danielle Smith press conference at the moment out at the Sutina Nation. And they're talking about uh, building uh, drug recovery centers on, uh, on nation land. So that's uh, obviously an important uh, issue uh, as we're trying to battle the addiction problem in the province, Corey.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's good to see that kind of innovation. You know, they, they, they're building that surgical facility up on the Enoch Reserve and they're putting something in down in the Sutina. Uh, look forward to finding out what the details are on that.
1: Absolutely. And uh, wish Jane luck for me. I hope she sells
0: lots of quilts. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. All right. So that is our news editor, Dave Naylor. This is the part where I nag you guys to help us pay our bills. And that reminder, uh, we might get cut off. It might be harder to find us on Google on Facebook, sites like that. So get onto the email lists, guys. You'll be able to see what's happening, see the stories as they're breaking, and of course, subscribe. We don't take those tax dollars. We don't take the bailouts. We rely on you guys, and we're accountable to you guys. $9.99 a month, $100 for a year. You get full access. Get past that pesky paywall and see the full stories the columns as you you know you can see the stories are breaking all the time we are putting them out there we're blowing the legacy media out of the water and it's thanks to you guys if you've subscribed already we really appreciate it if you haven't yet westernstandard.news/membership take one out this is this kind of outlet that's going to keep hanging in there while the other ones are falling by the wayside so yeah you know the big issue with this this, it it, it kind of ties into what I was ranting about before with, with times changing. So the longshoremen, the guys who work in the, the docks and the facilities on the West Coast are on strike. And, you know, I, I looked that up. These guys, they've, they've gone on strike and been legislated back to work. Let's see, in 1995, 1994, 1991, 1988, 1986, 1982, 1975, 74, 72. These guys are serial strikers. And they have us over a barrel. And I mean, this is a, a tough, tough deal. I mean, uh, you know, it's a much larger conversation, I guess, to be had on how you deal with that. Because organized labor, it's it's a right, you know, to be able to do that. But just to bear in mind, these guys are making, on average, the median salary is 136000 a year. I'm sure it's hard work working on those ports. But uh, they're not starving, guys. That's, that's that's some pretty good coin for a longshoreman. And the union says the key points, still right now, their gripe is the devastation of port uh, automation. You see, again, we're getting back to that fighting change. Yes, they, they, there's now automated things they are unloading those sea cans loading those trucks, dealing with inventory management, things like that. They're getting better and better. But rather than striking and just paying these guys more to do a job that's becoming obsolete, we need to be encouraging them to adapt. And that's... Uh, not the way we're going. They, we'll, we'll see. And, and uh, the chances of them being forced back to work are a little tough this time because Jagmeet Singh holds the balance of power and uh, he's saying, no, we aren't going to do that. We support our union, buddy. So I suspect uh, the Liberal government's going to cut these guys a big settlement or encourage one, I guess. It's not a direct government thing. Either way, we're going to see more costs due to it. You know that when you hold up product and delivery, the costs go higher. So let's talk to somebody who specializes and talk about all the other stuff that's nickel and diming us to death. And that's Chris Sims of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, so we can chat about and celebrate our second carbon tax. Hi, Chris. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Corey. Yeah. <laughs> happy second carbon tax. Happy Canada Day. Right on yeah. July 1st, too.
0: It's it's brutal. And, and uh, I mean, you know, you've been warning us about this for quite a long time, and people, I think, don't realize it. But I mean, once they start seeing it actually hitting their wallets, uh, maybe they start to realize that yes, all these initiatives cost us, and they're costing a lot.
2: Yeah, it costs us big time. So the first carbon tax is still going to be there and it is still going to triple within the next seven years. So as of right now, it's 14 cents a liter for gasoline, 17 cents a liter for diesel. So on average, you're paying around 15, $16 extra every time you're filling up even a light duty pickup truck. That's in the first carbon tax. This new carbon tax, the second one that's being layered on top, It's actually fashioned after British Columbia's second carbon tax. Uh, Anybody who's ever driven across the Rockies over to BC and looked up at the gas pump has gone, holy crap, why is that so much more expensive? Well, two reasons. One, they don't get the discount. So Premier Daniel Smith gives us the provincial uh, fuel tax discount here. So we're saving 13 cents right off the hop. Two, they have a second carbon tax over there, and it's a big one. It's like, you know, 15, 16 cents per liter extra. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, not kidding, took a look at BC and said, huh, that's super awesome. I'm going to do that to the whole country. And so as of July 1st, he's now imposed this government fuel regulation, which penalizes uh, companies for the carbon content of their product. Now, we don't know how much it's going to cost right out of the chute right because it takes a while so the company gets the cost incurred they then try to compensate some of them might use more ethanol for a little while in their blend blah 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 eventually though that cost is going to trickle down to you and me at the gas pump and we're going to pay for it so within the next seven years the parliamentary budget officer says the second carbon tax is going to cost around 14 cents extra per liter of gasoline around 17 cents extra per liter for diesel Long story short, Albertan families are going to get hit the hardest. Within the next seven years, Corey, we're going to be out around $3,900 per Alberta family. That's with rebates factored in. That's net cost of Trudeau's two carbon taxes.
0: But, but I mean, they're giving it back to us, right? We, we get rebates and they just announced, you know, they're going to give us a bunch of breaks on our grocery bills, right? Like it's just cycles through the government and we all win.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, if only it worked like that. Uh, so two two things. Um, it's almost insulting for the federal government to think that people are silly enough to think that the government is a magical wealth-producing machine. It's not. All it does is take your money, run it through a bureauc- bureaucracy, and spit it back at you sometimes. So number one, that cost I just listed was net. That's with the rebates factored in. That's $3,900 with that factored in. So you're out that amount as an Alberta family. Two, um, just don't take the money in the first place, right? If this is all supposed to make you magically more wealthy, then why are they doing this? The fact is, is they're fibbing. They're not telling the truth. They want gasoline and diesel and natural gas and propane to be unaffordable. That's the feature, not the bug. So every time the politician at the federal government level opens their mouths and says, oh, you're going to get more back than you pay in, number one, that's not true. Number two, that contradicts their entire purpose of their carbon tax, which is meant to punish you for using oil and gas.
0: And it's not working. That's the other thing. I mean, BC has been carbon taxing for a long time. You were out there until recently. And I I remember you guys would report on that. Emissions have been dropped in BC. If If a carbon tax was going to work, it would have started working by now.
2: 100%. So this is where, you know, as somebody, I grew up in the interior mostly, but I spent some of my formative years on Vancouver Island. You know, I get it. I've wandered around barefoot on Gulf Islands. I would describe myself as a small e-environmentalist. I pick up litter every time I'm walking near the river. Um, It's not helping the environment. Like, to slow that down, British Columbia has had the two highest carbon taxes in North America for years. Their emissions keep on going up anyway. This is the government's own data. Okay, now, apart from when people were locked in their homes and stuff at the beginning of 2020 where you saw a dip, other than those weird moments, it goes up and up and up steadily. Why? Because, like you know, and all your viewers know, people need to drive to work. They need to heat their home and they need to eat food. They don't have an affordable, alternative, dependable energy source to switch to. This isn't like paper bags or plastic bags. There's nothing for them to switch to. They have to drive to work and they usually use natural gas to heat their home and truckers use diesel and farmers use diesel and natural gas and propane to both heat their barns and to dry their grain. So if you increase the cost of that element of those fuels, you increase the cost of everything because people can't opt out, right? And so this is why this is such a brutal punishment for people. And what really gets me going Corey, is that the parliamentary budget officer themselves, an independent government watchdog that keeps an eye on the budget, says this hurts low income people like single mothers and fixed income folks the worst. It hurts them the most because for folks who don't remember what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck, that literally means your paycheck's out there paying for stuff. Everything, rent, your car payment groceries, whatever. You increase the cost of one of those essentials and you're cutting into their food budget. You're making them have to find a, a cheaper place to live. Good luck. So that's why it's hurting those folks the most, even with the rebates factored in. And this is where I can't understand why the feds aren't listening.
0: Well and, and part of it too, and you, you sort of touched a bit on that, is is the indirect costs. I mean we see it at the pump, we see it on our heating bill, but Also, the delivery of a lot of products and services to us, uh, retail retail brick and mortar places, they're all paying that as well. And of course, they have to incorporate that into the prices of the goods and services they provide. So you still end up paying it down the road for the other uh, uh, consumers of it in the the business world.
2: 100%. And so just imagine you were, you know, a, a store. You're a big store. You have to keep it cool in the summer and heated in the winter. Most, fo- most companies would use natural gas to do that. Boom, there's a carbon tax. All those trucks that deliver all the stuff that we eat and use that are backing into their loading bays, those are running on diesel. Those, those get a carbon tax. And a lot of folks forget too, that most of our locomotives in Canada run on diesel. It's around $2,400 extra per fill up of one of those diesel locomotives in the carbon tax alone that's just the carbon tax for a big rig truck like if you've got you know a peterbilt and you got a couple of those diesel cylinders that's around $160 extra just in the first carbon tax on diesel so that one's going to triple in the next 7 years plus the second carbon tax is going to add more pain and so this is where we're every time a politician opens their mouths about affordability you should really question them and ask them how seriously they're taking affordability when they're making everything more expensive through the carbon taxes.
0: So uh, something Dave mentioned before, and, and what uh, you and your organization just put out in a release, though, is this, this carbon tax isn't being uh, applied equally across the country. It appears that uh, we've got a special province that, uh, unsurprisingly, to be honest, is getting a break on it.
2: Guess which one? It's it's the province of Quebec. I know your your viewers are shocked. I I can tell at the Western standard. Uh, So what's interesting here, Corey, is that this is now getting really highlighted because up until July 1st, Atlantic Canada had a cap and trade deal. So they were paying a much lower carbon tax. I think it was around two cents per liter of gasoline, where the rest of us are paying 14 cents. Why is that? Well, they have uh, a more energy-intensive economy for heating, all blah, blah, blah. Whatever reason they had, they had a cap-and-trade deal so that they had a slower roll into the mandatory minimum federal carbon tax. Now, that's gone. Boom. Overnight, their cost of their carbon tax went up 12 cents a liter on gasoline. That's a big number. If you're filling up a minivan, that's 10 bucks. Boom added on to your extra cost overnight. And so that got a lot of news out that way in Atlantic Canada. And now it puts into sharp relief the fact that Quebec is the last one standing. They're the last ones that have a cap and trade deal. Now they don't have as good a deal as Atlantic Canada had going for a while. I think they're around 10 cents a liter or so, but they've still got a deal. This is all to say, there should be one rate for the carbon tax across Canada and it should be zero.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, that, that's the, the, we could all agree that that would have an equal impact upon every province in the country. But uh, I, I, let me play devil's advocate. Sure. Let's assume, you know, emissions are going to cause the world to continue burning and, and, and somehow Canada has to do its part, uh, you know, in, in reducing these emissions. If not carbon taxes, what should they do? I mean, that's a fair question that people ask if they're concerned about the problem uh, carbon taxes aren't working, then what should the government do?
2: Hey, totally legit question. And a lot of people care about the environment, myself included. Like, I hand-sewed my baby's cloth diapers. Okay, I take this stuff real seriously. I buy almost all my stuff used because it reduces the impact on the environment and it doesn't use up resources that don't need to be used. So I get it. Three things. One, the carbon tax isn't working. Straight up. If if that's your issue, if you wake up at three in the morning worried, oh my gosh, Global emissions, like it's really upsetting me. The Canadian carbon taxes aren't making a dent in that. Who said that? Actually, it was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Said it back in 2018, I believe, uh, in French. He said it on the very popular Quebec talk show Tulumont en Parle, and in translation, he basically said we could shut down everything tomorrow. And what he meant is trucking, heating, eating, like we'll go die in a cave. Um, We could shut down everything tomorrow and it wouldn't really make a big difference. Interestingly, the parliamentary budget officer said mostly the same thing, that Canada, I'm paraphrasing, Canada's emissions are not significant enough to make a dent in global emissions. So one, it's not working, even with the carbon taxes, even though British Columbia is one of the most unaffordable places to live on Earth. They're punishing their people. It's still not making a dent and it's not working because our emissions keep on going up. Two, even if it did, our emissions in Canada don't do enough to really move the needle on global emissions. And three, there are alternatives. So the tax isn't working. What could we possibly do? And so we're not the emissions people. We're the tax people. But it kind of seems a little obvious to look at the big end of the arithmetic problem. So there's about a few hundred million people in India who burn things like wood and animal dung every day. This is according to the Indian government saying this, that this is their fuel source. And they apparently want to switch to cleaner burning sources of energy, like natural gas. We've got a lot of that. So why doesn't the government look at doing that to really tackle the big end of the arithmetic problem when it comes to global emissions and heavy pollutants? why not ship them cleaner energy instead of punishing people here in Canada for driving their minivans and buying groceries?
0: Well, Yeah, and if we exported uh, some nice clean liquid natural gas uh, and increased that, they could get some tax revenues and they could apply that to, say, the unclean drinking water on First Nations reserves or planting more trees in areas where the fires did burn things. Crazy concepts, but I mean, they still can't seem to get off the idea that taxes can actually fix things.
2: Then this is the thing. Number one, we knew they wouldn't. <laughs> we were warning them years ago that this wouldn't work. We have a perfect lived example in British Columbia that this does not work. even if they try to trot it out and say it'll be revenue neutral, governments are going to government and they're going to cook the books, which is exactly what they did in British Columbia. It was only revenue neutral for a few years before they started skimming. Okay, so we know it doesn't work. We know it's making people poorer. We know it's driving up the cost of living and we know it's not helping the environment. So, folks, we need to rework this. We, We need a different approach and taxes are not it.
0: Well, I knew you guys wouldn't support taxes as an approach. Anyways, are pretty unlikely, but all all the same, I, I do appreciate the the work you guys do in bringing that to light because Canadians don't necessarily see how they're getting it. I noticed actually a, a side note. Uh, I, I, threw that out on Twitter. I see a, uh, another outlet in Canada labeled you guys as an anti-tax organization. So you're anti-taxers and boy, the, the games they play with the terminology. For-
2: I'll put that on a t-shirt, man, <laughs> anti-taxer. We yeah. should put that in, in our swag shop. Um, but you know, it's one of those things. And I think, um, I can't remember if it was because of the carbon tax or because of the so-called media bailout and the government funding the media that we got that label uh, on Twitter from that. Uh, But either way, uh, taxes, either if it's either the media bailout that they're trying to do and they keep fumbling really badly like today or uh, doubling up on our carbon taxes, uh, none of it works.
0: No, no, it doesn't. Well, where where can we uh, continue to to follow you guys and and uh, you know keep up with uh, what, what you guys are putting out there and how to support you?
2: Did you want to chat about Rodriguez or not? Do you want to get into the government why it shouldn't fund journalists, or we can save that for a rainy day? What would you like?
0: Hmm. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll go into overtime. <laughs>
2: wedging in on somebody else's time. I don't know who's up after me. I'll be really quick.
0: No, Uh, but all right. And it's well worth going into because that's just a a whole new absurdity that the whole C-18 and and the way they're trying to put the screws to uh, uh, social media uh, uh, platforms.
2: For sure. So speaking of, you know, not working, like we pointed out, the carbon tax isn't working as they're trying to say it's supposed to. Um, and the, the whole media bailout thing isn't working either. Uh, Black Locks reporter, great folks over there, uh, they pointed out that the rate of attrition and newsroom shutdowns didn't abate. It didn't stop with the so-called media bailout. Uh, that's the one where it's around half a billion dollars, and it was supposed to be a, a cluster of subsidies and tax credits, blah, blah, that was going to other media outlets outside of the CBC. Well, apparently it didn't work as intended, number one. Number two, that's a waste of taxpayers' money. You shouldn't be spending taxpayers' money on news media, period. And number three, this is a huge conflict of interest. You cannot hold government to account if you're counting on the government for your paycheck. It's not going to work. So if you, say, are a reporter... And $13,000 of your paycheck, your salary, is coming from the government, from Justin Trudeau's government. Now imagine yourself on Parliament Hill. You're part of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. One guy gives you thirteen grand towards your salary. It might be the deciding factor whether or not you got that job, if it exists. The other guys, in opposition, want to scrap that program. How on earth are you supposed to call that game straight? You're... You're not. Even if you tried, if you knew, even if you did yeoman's work to try, you're a human being. And the perception of bias is going to tarnish it. And this is the problem. Not all media outlets took government money, but most of them get accused of doing so. And this, as a longtime journalist, is what upsets me personally, is that now there's a major survey that goes out every year on trust. Corey, did you see those numbers?
0: Oh, they're in the toilet.
2: Oh, oh, OK. So a couple years ago, I was shocked to see it was over 40 percent of Canadians think that journalists are actively trying to mislead them. Not a typo, not a flub or a mispronunciation, not innocent mistakes, actively trying to mislead them. Corey, I checked the most recent one. It's over 60 percent of Canadians now think journalists are trying to actively mislead them with statements they know to be untrue.
0: No, that's that's brutal, and and I mean that that contributes more. It's just such a snowball effect because then people stop tuning in, they stop watching, the advertising revenues drop, and and on and on we go. And and what's insidious about this this social media shakedown they're trying, this is just their way of not reaching into the government t- coffers to try and bail these guys out. They want to reach into private industries coffers to do it, and. Uh, but it'll add to this. The government, of course, are the ones who will say whether or not you qualify for those dollars that they're going to steal from Facebook and Google on your behalf. So again, you end up, even if unconsciously, you're going to be leaning away from holding the government to account because you don't want to lose those dollars. It is a terrible, terrible mess we're getting into.
2: It is. It's a deep and obvious conflict of interest. I'm surprised that more journalists aren't just saying so. I understand that they're scared. Um, I've been in that position before. It's awful to have something shut down around you, like a media company. Uh, But it's not working. It's actually having, you know, a tightening effect. Because like we just said, look at that increase in lack of trust. Like, if the audience doesn't trust you, even on basic W5s, who, what, where, when, why, when, what are you doing? what are you doing anymore. And so they're going to have to figure out something else like you explained. They're going to have to do their own models, they're going to have to do their own subscriptions, they're going to have to take donations, something like that. They're going to have to shift their model of how they interact with their audience and how they generate revenue, but they can't take it from the government. They can't take it from taxpayers because then they're going to have the perception of bias and they're wasting taxpayers money. It's it's a major lose-lose situation and we're imploring the government and mainstream media, to rethink this.
0: Yeah, well, they seem to just keep doubling down. It's almost absurd, bizarre watching Rodriguez kind of fumbling around, throwing out threats and trying different things. I mean, this this bill is failing, but the the government will
2: not quit. And that's where we're wincing and bracing ourselves, because... The Google-Facebook thing, that doesn't directly affect taxpayers, so we're just keeping an eye on it. But the Band-Aid solution, if it fails, from what he said last week, was really concerning. He said something to the effect of, we need to make sure these newsrooms stay open. I'm sorry, who's we? The federal government needs to make sure a newsroom? No, you don't. Two, uh, and basically said, we will make sure they have the resources they need. Resources, in government speak, usually means taxpayers' money, which is we're saying no. No. So defund the media and defund the CBC. Like, not one nickel needs to go to the media.
0: Well, you won't hear any disagreement from me. No. Well, either way, we'll uh, see what's happening as this unfolds over the course of the summer. It gives us something to watch while Parliament's out of session, even if it's the darkest of comedy. So uh, I guess one more time before I let you go, where can people find out about what you guys do and, and what uh, how they
2: can support you? Oh, we would love that. Uh, Head on over to our website, taxpayer.com. The best way is to actually go through our petitions list. There's something there for everybody. If you want to defund the media, like we were just saying, if you want to scrap the carbon taxes, if you want to scrap uh, the gun grab, there's all sorts of stuff on there. Uh, Sign those specific petitions, and that way you're now part of our taxpayer standing army. And the next time there's a big bill or a piece of legislation or something to do, uh, we will send out a major email blast to you and let you know what we can all do. And by all teaming up and speaking up at the same time and pushing back, we have a much better chance of making the changes that we want to see in the government. It's participatory.
0: Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Well, appreciate you joining us today. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon.
2: Thanks so much, Corey.
0: Great. Thanks. Was well, Chris Sims of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation? It's true. It was worth going a little longer because there's just so many things to cover. Boy, they're hitting us on all fronts. It, it's just a, a, a never ending battle. This government doesn't has no interest in trying to do better. It's not interested in trying to come up with nuanced policies or actually solve problems. They just want to control and tax. And then tax is the hammer they love to use to achieve the first thing. But of course, it irreparably. I should say, reparably things recover, but it damages the economy. It damages people, and then with this media mess, yes, it's damaging trust. If nobody trusts what the media puts out there, they won't tune in. I mean, we're accountable to you. If we, if I kept feeding you a bunch of BS on this show and, and kept lying to you, uh, or just putting out you know sh- sh- shaky things, or if Dave was doing so with the news copy, things like that, our subscribers are going to say, I'm not tuning. I'm not paying to get this garbage fed to me. They will leave. We're accountable to them that way. And uh, that's the only way you can do it. But when you force everybody, you force the whole country to contribute and put money in, then there's no accountability whatsoever. So they can feed you whatever they please. And I mean, as we said, some of them might be very honest, good journalists and stories. But once the trust's lost, they all get labeled as the the parasites taking subsidies and things such as that. So everybody's losing here. Everybody's losing, and that's the, the the final part of every story we keep talking about with these things. Whether it's the carbon tax, whether it's these media ballots they aren't working. They aren't doing what they told us they were going to do in the first place. So why do we keep doing it? All right, let's see here where else we can go. Uh, yes, uh, some some other folks talking about a number of things. Uh, Somebody mentioned UBI and was asking about it. That's a a whole separate show. I guess I've written columns on it. That's uh, universal basic income ideas. And these are scary. That's to the point. It's basically a a backdoor to communism. It's saying we're going to set a bar and everybody will make this much and uh, anything, you know, the the government will uh, fund you at a a base level and anything you want to make above and beyond that is is, it's a pie in the sky dream. Other countries have tried experiments with it. It always fails. But uh, if they tax us deeply enough, you can get into that situation. So uh, let's talk about a few other news stories here while we're going into things. Here's something, because we're talking about the cost of living, cost of rent. Of course, we get the the people coming out of the woodworks, again, screaming for rent control, another proven failure of a policy. It never works. It never helps. Getting back to results-based policy. But some of the other areas for for landlords, people wondering why there isn't enough rental property out there, because that's the problem. There's not enough supply. It's as simple as that. If there's not enough places, the rents are going to go up. It's just the way it works, and if you control the rents, so you put a cap on it, you do things like that, well then people don't get into the rental market, they don't put their houses or apartment buildings out for rent, and you reduce supply and everybody gets screwed. But the other part is our lack of property rights. So if you're the owner, you're the landlord. And you know, landlords have been demonized for a long, long time. I mean, the old silent movies with the mustache tweaking guy, throwing the little old lady out in the street and things like that. But somebody has to own the house. Somebody has to maintain the house. Somebody has to pay the taxes on it. Somebody has to find the renters, manage all that. It costs, guys. So when you don't have property rights, though, then you start seeing why you don't want to do something. So we got a story in Calgary, a Calgary landlord. This is a fella up in the the Northeast. He figures it's about $100,000 in property damage got done by a group of squatters who moved in. Um, there they're, are they're nine people it turned out were stuffed into that house up in Temple and they just trashed the house. They paid the deposit to get in but then they never paid rent ever again after that. So he had to go in himself and evict them, kick them out after months. They never even paid the first month's rent. But now, now they're all camped on his front yard. They, I've seen pictures of the reports of this. There's just mattresses and furniture and appliances. And there's nine of them squatting in the yard of this house. And neighbors have been reporting. They're a bunch of addicts. They're just a mess. And he can't get rid of them. He's had the sheriffs come. He's had, uh, you know, he's gone through the system. He's gone through the courts. And there doesn't appear to be anybody willing. I mean, they can keep giving him notice and keep handing him pieces of paper and threatening him with the fines. They don't care. So this guy's home is getting completely destroyed and he can't throw them off of there. Um, angry Canadians say, my grandfather would walk in with his buddies and physically chuck them. Yeah, and that's the way it used to be. But now with these controls and everything, it's almost impossible for landlords to get rid of these guys when they do something like this. Which, again, compounds the problem. When other people considering getting into the rental market, like, you know, providing rental properties uh see stories like this. They say, you know what? I'm going to put my money into something else. I'm going to invest into something different. And meanwhile, our supply continues to crater. Uh, Angry Canadians saying, drag them out. The problem is, you know what will happen. You know what will happen. The property owner will be charged. The property owner will be the one who gets the crap for grabbing these bums and throwing them off as property. And let's go all the way farther back to Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Yes, that massive, nasty, nasty man whose second biggest crime after the National Energy Program was spawning Justin Trudeau, or some people think it might be somebody else. Who knows? But one of the things he also pointedly did with the charter was make sure we don't have property rights. Because this man who's having his home, his property, his investment, his life savings trashed by these bums, these addicts, He would have some recourse. He would have much more strength going to the course. He wouldn't have to in the first place because this is my property. I have the right to kick these people off it. But he's having to run the gauntlet. He's going desperately to the media. The media have talked to the neighbors. They said the media camped out and watched this place, and they watched the addicts coming and going into this. It's just a crack house on the front yard, and he can't get rid of it. So who? who's going to get into the rental business? Why would you do that? Why would you roll those dice? I mean, I know the vast majority of renters aren't like these people. Uh, you know, most of them are going to come in they'll pay their rent. They'll keep the place going, but everybody hears the horror stories and things like that. This is, you know, I, I don't know what sort of financial position this man's in, but I mean, that's a big chunk of money for anybody. It's a house. It's a, again, something he was hoping to invest in. What's it going to be worth by the time he finally gets those bums out of there? And then so we whine, don't go for rent control, guys. Make providing rental units more desirable. There's people who do want to invest. There's people who do want to have that sort of monthly income going on. But they need to know that their investment can be protected. They need to know they have some rights as a landlord. We always talk about tenant right, tenant right, tenant right. Well, these are just a bunch of bums. They shouldn't have any bloody rights to this man's property. But welcome to the backward world of Canada, right? We blame the provider. This is similar to how we blaming Facebook and Google, calling them bad, calling them nasty. Why? Well, because they were providing a service to the media. What? Yes. They want to steal money from social media providers because they were providing links to media. This is bizarro, but this is the point, too. This guy was a guy who invested his life savings probably... Bought the house, got it up to a point. He looks like he's a new Canadian, and he's trying to make it out here like everybody else is. And instead, he's stuck in this living, waking nightmare of trying to protect his own property. And he gets blamed. He gets blamed. The landlords are blamed. The people who invest and take the risk, start the business, try to provide the things are demonized. They're the ones who are called jerks. They're the ones who are saying everybody, you know, we should cap the rent they can collect, and we should gouge them. They're just going to get out of the market, guys. Welcome back to policies that don't work. And when they get out of the market, nobody has anywhere to live. And then, you know, the, the progression of fools who go down that road. Because, well, if, if private industry won't provide rental uh, housing, we should get the government in on it. Oh, okay. You should travel a little more and see just how nice government-built housing is. How good it looks. You really want to see the projects? You really want to see... How nice it is. I had the opportunity to go to Moscow back in 87. That was government-provided housing. Nobody was homeless, I tell you. But boy, what a beautiful spot to live. Bland, basic apartment buildings as far as the eye could see, run down in poor condition because nobody owns them, right? So nobody maintains them. So they're falling apart, yet they're still paying for these. Guys, we need property rights. We need to reward our producers instead of demonizing them. We need to let them earn money and provide things for us rather than stealing from them. But we aren't. we're, We're in this world where we're playing the politics of envy, where we are stepping on those who go out of their way to make things, yes, better for themselves, good for them. You're damn right it's good for them. There's nothing wrong with investing for yourself. And you know what? It makes things better for others when you let them do it. We've got a whole mentality, a philosophy, a nasty anti-success mindset that's really sinking in, a sense of entitlement. The world owes me an apartment. The world owes me cheap groceries. The world owes me this. The world owes me that. No, it doesn't. It doesn't owe you a damn thing. All the government owes you is providing the environment for you to be able to get up and get those things for yourself. You know, you shouldn't be stolen from, you shouldn't be assaulted. Sure, I'm not an anarchist, I want to see some degree of government, but we need less and less, not this this constant controlling and everything, and everything's the government's responsibility. Guys, that won't work for you. That won't work for you. The less government, get off your ass. I know, it's scary. You'll have to take care of yourself. Consider the government. A lot of you guys, it's mom's basement is what it is for you. And you've grown dependent on it and you're not letting yourself find the ambition and work ethic to get out of it. Well, that's your own fault. And, and demanding more government is not going to fix the problem, guys. It's never worked before. It's not going to work now. All right. That was enough ranting and raving and pissing and moaning out at me for today. Otherwise, the weather's beautiful. Stampede's coming up next week. Uh, we've got a nice summer ahead of us for most of... Uh, Canada here. Let's embrace it. When you get off the show, get outside, get some sunshine, mow the lawn, do it while you can, because it'll be winter soon enough. Thank you all for tuning in today, guys. And I will be back next week at the same time with a whole bunch more stuff to uh, go on about. Maybe even I'll come up with a few solutions for problems.
3: Thanks. The current Lethbridge feed grain prices are as follows. Cash barley's at 415, feed wheat's at 405, and corn's down five dollars at 385 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, September Minneapolis futures jumped 42 cents at 8.51, with local hard red spring bids for July movement at 10.65 per bushel. In the oil seeds, nearby canola futures gained 10.50 dollars 50 at 7.4990 per metric ton, with delivered values for July movement at 17.23 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentils are trading at 33 cents a pound, and yellow peas remain at 11.25 per bushel. In the cattle markets, August live cattle lost 80 cents at 176.03 per 100 weight. For more information on grain marketing, call me at 403-394-1711. I'm Sean Smith of Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options.
0: Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago these guys are on the front lines uh, helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in canada and more importantly educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people to become a member it's absolutely worth every penny